Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Hannah Blackiston and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, Tim Burrows will be talking to Ralph Van Dyke and Ramesh Sathaya about their new venture, Resonance. We've just been noticing the growing need for a dedicated audio branding service. The evolution of the audio market. Adoption has been slow in terms of the, the, the skills that people are using on, their, on, on a daily basis, but the potential is huge. And how to create an audio brand identity. Brands understand the uh, vocabulary in explaining that visually, and then we will interpret that but first, the week's topics. Seven returns to supercars with a $200 million deal. Thinkabelle tackles ageism with an over-55s internship. And Uber Eats takes Tonight I'll Be Eating to the US with some familiar faces. First up, you will notice some changes across the Mumbrella cast over the next few weeks. We're going to give the podcast a bit of a revamp to hopefully bring you more of the news and analysis you need in a Zapier format. If you've got any feedback or thoughts for what could make the Mumbrella cast even better, please reach out. You can contact me on hannah at mumbrella.com.au and that's H-A-N-N-A-H. First up for news this week though, there's a new free-to-air partner for supercars. Seven has welcomed the sport back with open arms, partnering with Foxtel on a $200 million five-year broadcast deal. While the announcement didn't come as a massive surprise, the AFR had already reported earlier this year that 10 was moving away from the sport and Seven was the likely replacement. Having been a former partner of the supercars, Foxtel has also been a broadcast partner since 1997. But the difference here is the price. The previous five-year deal was worth $241 million. This time, the number has been reduced by $41 million. Brittany, does it surprise you at all that in five years, the sports rights have reduced by that much? I can't say that I was surprised. We're also talking about a year for deals that is unlike any other year that we've ever had. And I think regardless of who the free-to-air partner was, they were never going to pay as much as, you know, what was paid five years ago. So, I mean, all all of the networks really, um, obviously Seven and Nine, particularly with their sports lineups, have been really vocal this year about bargaining for sports, driving the price down, you know, particularly in the context of COVID-19. So, I can't say that I'm surprised, but, you know, $200 million, it's still a big deal. Yeah, it is still a big deal. I'm actually, I think personally, a little bit surprised that the number wasn't lower. I'm kind of quite impressed that they managed to hold on to such a sizable amount. And as you said, it's kind of the year for deals. You know, we've seen the AFL and the NRL take some pretty big chunks off their cost. Um, I think as well, if we look kind of forward, we're probably going to see more of this. If we look at Nine's documents from their share, last shareholder meeting, their chairman, Peter Costello, said that sports rights are likely to continue going down. He's like, you know, we've kind of seen a point where perhaps people thought they were always going to go up, especially because Australia is obviously a country which is very sports obsessed. However, 
you know, COVID has probably accelerated that in that there are a lot of sports that couldn't go ahead during this time. But it may have already been the way that perhaps viewing isn't what it used to be. We don't all sit in front of the TV and watch things like we used to. And therefore, it's quite likely that sports rights were going to take a hit. And I thought those comments were really interesting. And to me, felt very ominous of perhaps what's to come over the next year. I can't imagine it's very easy at the moment to broker these deals when, especially in some states, we don't even know what the next month is going to hold. And sport is something that's so heavily impacted by that. Yeah, for sure. And I think to your point about, you know, viewing habits changing, it feels like where and the way that we watch sport is just not even what it was five years ago, let alone 10 or 20, you know, You've got Foxtel's KO, for example, that if you're sports obsessive, that would be a big pull. Wouldn't necessarily mean that you're also sitting down to the free-to-air networks and watching their sports lineups. Then you've got, you know, streaming options for specific sports. Like I know the NBA has their League Pass product, for example. It's, It's a completely different environment. And as you say, we don't even know if the Olympics, for example, you know, the biggest sports platform in the world is going ahead, you know, almost 12 months down the track. Yeah, it would be really tricky to try and make, you know, an educated guess for what these deals are going to be worth in, you know, six months, let alone 12 months or five years. Yeah, and I've had a couple of conversations with people before about whether that kind of NBA model is an option in this country, whether, for example, the NRL could create its own subscription service. I think the general consensus is that we're just not a big enough market here and that, you know, where the NBA is obviously marketing to the US, which is much bigger, but then also globally, that's kind of not an option here. So I think if that was a possibility it will be something we're likely to see in the next couple of you know years, possibly months. Um, this week also saw Qantas announce it was letting go of rugby, which is a partnership it had held for 30 years. However, the announcement uh, included that the airline was still going to retain its sponsorship of Cricket Australia and the FFA, as well as continuing to work with the Olympics and the Paralympics. But it's no longer going to be going to be doing any cash sponsorships. So those are all just going to include, you know, contra deals, advertising and tickets and things like that. This is something Supercars also went through earlier this year. Obviously, Virgin Australia used to be the naming partner there. Didn't work out so well for Virgin Australia earlier this year. So Repco's taken over there. I can remember, Brittany, last year we had the conversation about domain and them stepping back from how much money they were putting into the cricket. And at the time, it felt a little bit like they knew something the rest of us didn't about what was coming on the sports front. But we've also seen companies like KFC continue their support of the BBL. They've been a big naming partner since the beginning of the BBL. Do you think, I just kind of have to wonder what's going to happen for sport going forward because in order to sign these big name deals they need to prove their worth you know they need to prove just the same as broadcast rights you need to prove that you're worth what a company has been paying you and I think the fact so many companies were happy to do or to continue with Qantas without any cash changing hands it kind of makes you wonder like what are we looking at in the future of naming rights and what are we looking at in the future of brand partnerships with sport Yeah, and it feels like sports partnerships vary so much in terms of, you know, impact. Like when I think of the BBL, for example, I automatically think of KFC. And I think that that shows 
that you have to be prepared to almost be in it for the long haul to kind of get that association and, you know, the the success that follows. Whereas if, you know, for example, I think of Cricket Australia, I don't necessarily automatically think of Domain and, and their previous partnership with the sport. So I think you're right. I think it also says a lot about, you know, as you say, cash not being handed over by Qantas, can sports continue to rely on on those sorts of deals, especially when, you know, marketers are moving more towards short-term marketing rather than long-term at the moment? Um, you know, we know that if you continue to spend through a recession, you'll be better off in the long run and that's the stuff that builds brands. But in terms of where dollars are going to be focused, it's definitely going to be on that kind of short-term stuff rather than perhaps these longer-term brand-building exercises. Yeah, definitely. And I think for what it means for these organisations, we've already seen a lot of supporting organisations this year go through a change in leadership. There's obviously been some very pointed comments from some of the media network about perhaps money not being spent the way it should be spent. So I think if you're in a sporting organization, as much as it's happened to anybody else this year, this is the year that you're going to try and accelerate any transformation you had, any push you can towards connecting directly with your, you know, viewers is all just going to be accelerated. So yeah, I think um, this is going to be something we're not going to see the end of, and it'll be really interesting to see how it tracks over the next 12 months. Next up, Thinkabelle tackles ageism. Thinkabelle has launched a paid eight-week internship for people 55 and over in a bid to push back against ageism and inject talent with years of life experience into the agency and industry. The program, dubbed Thrive at 55, aims to tackle an obvious age gap in most advertising agencies, with just 5% of agency employees across the world over 50. The median staff member age is 38. Brittany, I saw some really interesting feedback to this on LinkedIn where it was received a little bit better, I think, than it was in our comments. Obviously, earlier this week, we did turn off the comments on Mumbrella, um, which you can read more about on the website. So that debate didn't go on for very long, but it was quite interesting to me this is one of those ones that I just felt so sure was going to attract entirely positive feedback. And then there was the occasional detractor. And I thought that was really interesting. But what was your initial response to this? Look, my very first question when I saw the press release come through, but hadn't properly read it was, is this going to be paid? And I bet it is, as opposed to, you know, the internship programs for graduates, which you assume and most often are not paid. So I was glad to see that it's paid. I don't think that it would have had much of an uptake if it wasn't. But I think, you know, good on Thinkabelle for kind of doing something about it. We can talk and talk and talk as long as we want about how the advertising industry isn't representative, whether or not that's in terms of age, culture, gender, you know, the rest of it. But it takes, you know, a little bit of guts to actually say, okay, well, here's a possible solution. Here's something we think could help and we're going to do something about it. I mean, the interesting thing is, and the thing that stuck with me, is they're not advertising or 
attracting people for specific jobs. The application process is very much designed to ask people, hey, tell us a bit about you. Tell us about your life experience. Tell us about, you know, what you think that we could bring to you and vice versa. And then from there, if they're people that they think have the talent and the experience and, you know, the the skills that they're looking for, figuring out how best that person and those skills fit into an advertising agency. I think that's a really clever way of thinking about recruitment, a really clever way of thinking about the talent pipeline. And ultimately, if you're trying to create ads that are going to reach people who aren't, as you say, the median age of 38, you know, a good way to also connect with consumers and connect with, you know, your clients' customers. So I I like the idea and I was also surprised that there were so many detractors. I don't think that it's fair to say, well, grad internships aren't paid and therefore, of course, they're handing, you know, money over to boomers. It's not an either or. Agencies just need to pay grads too. Yeah, I think the argument can definitely be made there that you're in a very different place in your life at the age of 55 or above than you are under that and you know you're probably a lot less likely to be able to take on unpaid work at that time however I obviously still agree that interns and grads should be paid um what so a lot of the feedback or the negative feedback that we saw was that this is kind of you know a virtue signaling thing this is trying to look like you're welcoming everybody in and you know it's a bit of you know, it's not necessarily something with any substance. I think as we've talked about in the past with any of these kind of initiatives, it's just opening the door, isn't it? It's kind of entirely up to think about what they do from this point on. It will become really obvious really quickly if this was just a way for them to kind of draw attention to themselves, I think. But what I think could come out of this is really interesting. And especially as we're going through a period like we are at the moment where a lot of people are changing their jobs a lot of people are having a lot of trouble kind of reskilling or changing what they're doing later on in life I think this is such a great way for people who have perhaps not gotten their foot in the door in an industry which in this country is incredibly hard to get your foot in the door of this is just such a good chance for people who have got some really interesting backgrounds to kind of come forward with that so I think if Thinkabell uses this the right way the opportunity is there to do something really cool with it. Yeah, totally. I think as long as something isn't normal or, you know, regularly happening across the industry, it's always going to appear like it could be virtue signaling at first because nobody else is doing it. I think that it's much easier to see why, you know, places want to have really good grad programs and internship programs at a much more junior level because you're paying those people fairly cheaply and they could stay with your organization for a long time. Regardless of what industry you're in, it's very, very rare that companies are actively trying to hire people who are closer to potential retirement age than not and are recognizing those kind of years of service as a good thing rather than a bad thing, particularly when it often comes with a higher price tag. And I'm working up in Newcastle this week where my family lives and I had dinner with my dad and we were talking about this. I I raised it with him and asked what he thinks because he left a career uh, a year ago or so and had that really strange moment as, you know, I think he was 55 last year, 56 this year, had that really strange moment of, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my 
working life. I don't have any other skills. I've done this job for my whole life. It's all I know. What what do I want? What am I good at? And all of those questions that you're asking yourself when you're 18. So look, I think it's really clever. I think if any agency would do it, it's Thinkabell. And I think it's, as you say, completely up to them to to prove that it's a great thing that they end up hiring some of these interns that they get through the door. Next up, the continuation of Uber Eats's Tonight I'll Be Eating campaign. And in case you missed it, arguably the most well-known leader in the media and marketing industry, Sir Martin Sorrell, is the latest international speaker joining the Mumbrella 360 reconnected virtual speaker lineup this November 17th to 20th. This one is not to be missed. Here from the founder and executive chairman of S4 Capital as he appears in a fireside chat to discuss 2020, S4 Capital and the path to the future. Tickets are available from $69. Visit mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 to book. Special Group is back with another Uber Eats campaign. This one taking the Tonight I'll Be Eating brand platform to new heights with Star Wars star Mark Hamill and Star Trek's Sir Patrick Stewart. The series of ads will be used to launch the brand platform in the US and Canada. Brittany, before we break these down a little bit further, what did you think about the ads? Look, I should flag that my experience of the ad was definitely made better by reading about it and hearing about it beforehand. Maybe it's just me and I'm a complete pop culture philistine, but I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, nor am I a huge Star Trek fan. I recognize Patrick Stewart from Star Trek, and that connection was immediately obvious to me. But I don't think I would have known who Mark Hamill was unless I'd read that it was the whole Star Wars, Star Trek kind of setup. I think that it was funny and it was clever. It's not, you know, the most innovative concept or the wittiest copywriting or, you know, the most interesting ad. But I think when you consider what this is trying to do, which is introduce this platform to the US, they're two extremely likable guys, both on screen and off. They've both got very distinct off-screen personalities and, you know, both from obviously huge franchises, even if they're not, you know, my favorite franchises. That's not to say at all that they aren't enormously popular. So I think it kind of does what it's supposed to do, which is, you know, tap into that market in kind of a clever and funny way that's memorable, which is ultimately what this brand platform has become kind of known for here. Yeah, if they had just picked uh, stars of The Office, it would have been the Britney Rigby Tonight I'll Be Eating. Or perhaps Selling Sunset Stars would also be an incredible format that actually I could get behind. Should the um, group hire us? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, I had a really interesting moment with these ads because I, when we were watching TV the other night, the Kim Kardashian, Magda Zubansky Tonight I'll Be Eating ads came on. And I said to my partner, Aaron, I was like, oh, I wonder if now that Keeping Up With The Kardashians is being retired, we'll see the end of these ads or, you know, Kim won't be involved in any going forward. And he was like, oh, they'll probably get someone really stupid and boring to do the next ones. And then this ad literally came in two days later and I sent it to him and I was like, stupid and boring, hey. Um, He loved it, was like 
in hysterics. And I had watched it and been like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. And I got the jokes unlike Britney. Um, so I was pretty happy with it. But, yeah, he was, like, on the floor laughing, which I was pretty impressed by. So they've definitely hit a good note with it. Um, what really struck me was how different it was from the initial launch of the platform. So the Tonight I'll Be Eating platform first launched in 2017, and it was primarily local Aussie stars on it. It was Naomi Watts, Bo Ryan, Sophie Monk, and Peter Fitzsimons all featuring in it. And I can remember, and someone brought this up to me yesterday as well, if you go back and you look at that initial campaign and you look at the comments both across our platform but also across other media platforms, it's incredible how harsh people were of that campaign. You know, neither you nor I worked in this industry at that point, but it's quite intense how much critical feedback the ad campaign got. I saw, you know, just a lot of people saying the ads were awful. They were really cringy. The celeb performances were terrible. Oh, it's such a basic campaign. And you fast forward to this year and it's become one of the more lauded brand platforms in the last couple of years. You know, it's won a heap of awards. It's obviously been used for some pretty massive spin-offs. And as I just mentioned, Kim Kardashian has even been involved with it. So do you reckon that when those ads first came through, perhaps the brand platform wasn't where it is now? Or do you think that maybe audiences were just being a little harsh at that time? Look, the industry being harsh about competitive ads, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Look, I think that it's undeniable that the platform's come a long way since then. I mean, you know, we're talking about Bo Ryan and Peter Fitzsimons and Sophie Monk and, you know, as, as great as those people are, we're not talking about Kim Kardashian and Patrick Stewart. So I think it had to have kind of started and built to have gotten where it is now. I really liked the iteration that was Farnsy, Barnsy and Arnsy, which is a more recent one, still local, but I thought that was clever. I think that, you know, Kim Kardashian being involved took it to a whole other level again and the jokes and the Kath and Kim, you know, reference was really funny and playful and I think that's what's enabled it to springboard now to the US with, you know, Mark Hamill and Patrick Stewart. So, look, I don't know if commenters were wrong necessarily, but I think that the platform has certainly, you know, gone from strength to strength, which really, like, you, that's what you want. You don't want it to start off really strong and then have to continue topping that every time. So, look, I think it's done what it what it was supposed to do. How about you? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I think I can remember quite liking the initial ads and I think it was because they were quite different. You know, they it's a very obvious breaking of the fourth wall. Almost all the dialogue in those initial ads was delivered directly down the barrel of the camera. There was some kind of really like they they felt really cheesy and they felt really kind of yeah, a little bit cringy, but I felt like that's what they were going for. I felt like they weren't, you know, I felt like Uber Eats and Special Group were in on that joke. And so I quite liked it, but I think you're totally right. I think it's matured in a way that you probably couldn't have predicted back in those days. And I think what they've done really well is, as you said, managed to top themselves each time. I think the fact that we couldn't have predicted where they would go after Kim Kardashian and that they've gone to, you know, people who are much more famous, but in a very different way. And 
they're still playing on those really interesting pop culture references, you know, Kath and Kim and now these obviously sci-fi pop culture references. But in just kind of a way that if you're not in on the joke, you're not going to get it but that doesn't really matter. You can still kind of enjoy what it is. I just think they're such a smart series of ads. And I, this ad particularly really made me want to know what's coming next, especially for Australia, and really made me kind of want to, yeah, see what the next iteration of this could be. Up next, Tim Burrows will be speaking with Ralph Van Dyke and Ramesh Sathaya. Joining me now are two of the most respected players in Australia's audio scene. Ralph Van Dyke is boss of audio agency Eardrum, and Ramesh Sathaya is creative director of Australia's best-known music and sound design company, SongZoo. And they're today announcing a new venture. So welcome both. Um, Let's start with your news. Uh, Coming together of the two families, tell me about Resonance. Well, uh, Eardrum and Songzu have worked together for many years and we have a mutual respect for each other. And uh, we've just been noticing the growing need for a dedicated audio branding service. And I actually partly blame Mumbrella for this um, because, um, or thank Mumbrella for this. We made a content series for Mumbrella Cast earlier this year called Audio Diaries, which I'm sure you remember. And uh, I interviewed a number of Australia's leading CMOs about the role of audio. Um, and without exception, they all said audio was playing an increasing role in their, in, in their brand moving forward. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's really born out of need is, uh, is, is why we're really uh, moving forward on this now. Well, look, and it's and it's probably, and I'll bring you in at this point, um, uh, Mesh. Um, it's probably just worth uh, for people who aren't as close to the audio sector as yourself, explaining what the two partners are bringing to this. You know, what Songzu does versus what Eardrum does. Look, you know, the way we—I mean, the simplest terms is we feel that we're stronger together. You know, and and I think look at one way of thinking about it is, you know, we're known for you know. High, the highest quality execution, uh, and Ralph is known for that strategic thinking, um, being a specialist audio audio agency rather than necessarily a production company. And we just felt like together, it's a it's a really strong uh, combination, and we can do something different that hasn't been done in this market before, which is a really dedicated, thoughtful, strategic uh, audio branding agency. And look, and I suppose the 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 heritage for Songzu is is it's. To put it really simplistically, the creating of the music. Yes. Well, actually, the interesting thing is we're generally, and this is the big difference, is we're generally part of the post-production process. So music is thought of as something you do in post. It's like we have pictures, we have a commercial. Uh, what music does it need? And that's when we're brought in. And sometimes even in that process, people go, oh, well, maybe we need a, a mnemonic device at the end. But is that the right time to be thinking about the sound of a brand? So we're trying to move the music and sound um, process out of post-production and and do it from from a top-down kind of view. So we're thinking strategically about what should the sound of your brand be and then let that filter down to all the touch points. Well, 
I, I must admit, I I can't think of a time, certainly sitting from 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 where I sit, writing about this industry, where I haven't seen so much change all at once for the audio sector. You know, we we, we people like podcasting is having its second or possibly third coming. Smart speakers are finally maybe just becoming smart enough. Uh, music streaming is becoming a you know a real alternative or challenger or supplementary service to radio um so it feels like there's a lot of change happening um ralph how how do you see the sector right now how do you what 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 do you see as the real key changes i think the access to audio on demand is uh changing the behavior of consumers i think that people's lifestyle has changed they are you know wanting to multitask so there's a there's a move from uh, consumers uh, uh, and where the consumers go, the brands need to follow. Technology has also improved, so it's just technically uh, m- much more av- available audio content. And this is borne out in things like the IAB State of the Nation survey, where uh, last year the, the results were 9 in 10 media buyers are using streaming digital, uh, 75% experience podcast advertising in 2019, and so it's the 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 behavior of, of the audience is changing, and I think that for the first time brands have been faced with um, the challenge of expressing their own brand in sound and being able to join all their media uh, through consistent uh, audio branding. So one of the areas which is fascinating me, and it's partly um, horrific fascination and just partly actual fascination. You know, I. I, you know, I gaze off to the side because I, I hate to say the word that begins with A and has got an X in the middle because the minute I say it, it will spring to life. Um, but you know the speaker I'm talking about. Um, how mm-hmm. how fast are marketers getting to grips with smart speakers? Uh, it's a slow process. I think that uh, the un- the main thing that brands need to understand is whatever they create for this device needs to be a utility needs to be something that is going to be really useful for people it, you know it, it, adoption has been slow in terms of the, the the skills that people are using on their on, on a daily basis but the potential is huge um uh cape gemini predicted that 70 percent of consumers will replace their visits to the store or bank with their voice assistance mm-hmm. so if consumers aren't leaving home then brands can't get to give them their visual reminders so a strong audio asset they can reach consumers when they're making their shopping lists, when they're purchasing via their smart speaker. And brands like KFC, um, they've recreated the voice of Colonel Sanders, and they're adding a new sort of depth to that brand engagement. He's giving fans chicken jokes, uh, poultry pickup lines, um, random chicken thoughts, and we can't have enough random chicken thoughts in our day. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're embracing this technology. And I think that that's a, a massive uh, opportunity for, for brands using voice and even just using an audio logo as a, as a two or three second way of branding a search result. Because I don't know how, uh, you know, that, that can be monetized. No one wants to sit through an ad if they search for their local, you know, the nearest pizza places near them. They're not going to sit through a 30 second ad. But to have that sponsored by with a little mnemonic, I, I don't think that's a fair enough trade off. You give me curated uh, results and I'll I'll sit through three seconds of a brand sponsorship. 
Well, look, we'll, and we'll we'll come to the back to the audio branding in a second. Just staying with with you for one more moment, Ralph. Um, one of the things that strikes me is m- much as audience behaviour is changing around um, podcasting, it still feels that there's quite a big degree of inefficiency in the advertising side of the ads we actually hear hear on the podcasts. You know, they're either you know sort of live reads by the host or they're they're created bespoke. Um, do you think that's a barrier to the the kind of the mass take up? You know, the fact that hey, if you're you know talking about a display ad on a website, it can appear in millions of places at once. Versus, it's hard to get that same scale in podcast advertising. It's certainly harder to get the uh, to replicate the impact that a host has in a podcast when they are talking genuinely about a product that they're endorsing. That has that that holds a, a lot of value and carries a lot of weight. That obviously is limited to that particular podcast. Programmatic uh, is is helping that process, but it's such an intimate medium. If you get that wrong, it really does feel like an unwelcome guest in your podcast. If if the advertiser sounds if it sounds like a radio ad, for example, or the tone isn't sympathetic to the to the tone of the the, the show itself. It really does jump out. So it's improving. I think that the, the, the scale, I think things will scale up. I think that uh, once people, uh, you know, it'll get to the point where they're just, there's such pressure for the inventory in a podcast that they won't be able to run everything, as, every ad as a, as a live read. So I, be, I do believe that ad breaks will start happening in, in the podcast. Um, but they'll be they'll be equivalent to features, and they'll feel more like um, program pieces. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing that it's not going to have the sort of same impact as or or, or um, sort of ease as a lot of the visual digital uh, ads because that can often be invisible and and can be a, a bit irritating. So, you know, it does need to be sympathetic to the environment. And I think that that's its appeal. That's its impact. Well, Mesh, let's use a sort of hypothetical example of the sort of work you might do. I I presume it might be something like uh, a big brand. Let's say one of the top four Australian banks comes to you and says, we need some sort of uh, audio signature. Um, How do you then think about it? How do you actually come at that question? Well, I think you've got to go to the to the very beginning of trying to understand you know what is the what's the essence of the brand what's what's the brand personality what's the brand tone of voice and there'll be obviously certain words and phrases that they are saying that that represent their brand and then we've got to realize there are certain ones of those that we can help with and ones we can't like for example they might say uh you know a common one might be friendly and approachable yep music can help with that but they might say trustworthy that's not for music you know, they, they need to be trustworthy, but we can't really help with, probably can't really help with trustworthy. Maybe the um, the voiceover can help with it sounding trustworthy. So we try to connect the different parts of their brand personality with the areas that music and sound can help. And then we also talk about like, well, what sort of strategy do you want as a, um, as, what sort of, what sort of um, audio brand do you want to be? And we got a, a thinking about you can be a reinforcer like like Bunnings. They, they just have the same track over and over again. And that works really well for them. 
or you could be a storyteller like Nike, where every ad has a different story, has completely different music, but you know that that's the sort of pathos of the brand. So that that's connected with them. I think Westpac are doing that in Australia at the moment. Or you could maybe be a curator brand like Apple. who They're just known for having cool music. So you need to just sort of decide what kind of brand they are. And then from that point on, you make that decision and then you figure out what audio assets you're going to create. And it might be a, it might be a mnemonic. It might be a, a library of music. Or you might actually decide that, you know, you, what you guys need is to, to find a cool track every time you have an ad. It just totally depends on the brand. And there's not one way. We're not trying to say this is the way it has to be and every brand needs to have an audio logo. No, not, not every brand needs to have it. It's not right for every brand. So we want to have that level, that sort of discussion to figure out what kind of brand they are and then figure out what they need. And Ralph, I presume that uh, given that this is in some ways quite new territory although obviously there are some brands which have done it for you know decades um do you do you find that marketers are still developing their own vocabulary when it comes to creating briefs for this sort of work is that where you come in Uh, yeah i think so yes uh, they understand how to brief visual identity and and design for the brand uh, and we are using a lot of the same language and a lot of the same considerations are being made. You know, we have to look at a, a, um, a competitor. We have to do a competitor anal- analysis. We have to look at the application of the whatever we're creating. What devices are going to is it going to be best used in? What advertising platforms have you been using? What uh, style of advertising? So brands understand the uh, vocabulary in explaining that visually and then we will interpret that and say okay well that's this is this is the palette that we can use both in voice and in music to uh, express what you're trying to achieve and it's and, and there's no surprise that we're working with the top uh, design agencies and they're bringing us in when they're getting briefed to do a, a you know a rebrand they understand the the role audio can play as part of that and uh, we're doing that in conjunction in more cases. So, Mesh, looking either around the world or locally, um, which brands are already doing it well? Uh, well, look, uh, in Australia, I think there are a few brands uh, that are doing it well. Uh, well, one that I think we're involved in is Woolworths. I think they, they've got a really good balance of it. Uh, what they're doing is they've got a historic audio logo, which is uh, the, the Fresh Food People melody, which they've just basically, you know, taken a part of it. They no longer sing it, but they use that melody. But they have a really a wide variety of music they use. So unlike unlike Bunnings, who just use one track, uh, Woolworths have got a suite of maybe 20 or 30 tracks that they use. But they're all tied together from having an understanding of what's the tone and feel of the brand. So they actually license a lot of songs, but we bring it into the style of um, of Woolworth. So, for example, last year we um, they licensed um, Blitzkrieg Bop from, um, from 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 the Ramones. I mean, but we made it feel like a Woolworths track. So somehow, of course, there are some Ramones fans who will never forgive ah, you. For exactly, that. exactly. Hey, don't tell them where I live. <laughs> Um, so I think I think they're they're a really good example of it. But you know, people always mention Apple as being one of the great audio brands. But if you look at what they do, there actually is virtually no consistency in it at all. Uh, it changes all the time. But as a whole piece of communication, they got other areas of their communication that's absolutely consistent. The look and feel of it is absolutely consistent. And the other thing that people expect from Apple is that the music will be cool. So they're two completely different examples, I think. 
And Ralph, do you want to build on that? Are there any brands that leap out for you? Well, I think that the ones that we believe uh, are doing it best is the ones that are most consistent. And uh, brands like Toyota with Oh What a Feeling, um, Mesh mentioned, mentioned Woolworths, um, the, the, the McDonald's is obviously a big, uh, a, a big case study in our world. That consistency is uh, so critical and to be, it makes the, the decision-making process of getting it right so much more important because this is something you should live with because the longer you live with it, the more valuable it becomes. So it's so important that it not just is associated with the brand, whatever the mnemonic or the piece of music is, it's that every time it's heard, it says something about the brand. It's, ex- it's expressing some element of its personality. And that's where a lot of mistakes, I think, are being made, where uh, people are rushing to execution and they are ending up using the same sort of palette of sounds and the same pentatonic scale. And they end up all sounding pretty similar. But there's such a wide variety of options available. I mean, IINet do it well with their brand voice, their consistent use of that of their mm. brand voice. He just needs to say three words that don't need to mention the brand, and you're already thinking IINet. Now, mm. that enables that brand to use short ad units and to be instantly, you know, uh, making it uh, making its its uh, a statement uh, and being recognisable within the first few seconds, and that's a huge advantage. Now, um, Ralph, in about three weeks' time, you're going to be speaking at Mumbrella's Audio Land event on October the 13th. Um, without giving too much of your presentation away, uh, you're going to be talking jingles. Yes, love them or hate them, um, but we can't live without them. They, uh, I mean, Australia has a, a long heritage of, of famous jingles, and some of them are great and some of them great <laughs> and i think that the uh, we'll be looking and dissecting some of the favorites and seeing which ones have done it really well and which ones have just stuck around long enough to become part of the furniture and and, and you know we, we uh we recognize them but we kind of do an eye roll uh but the, yeah we'll be looking at and some of the stories behind them uh are really fascinating some of the stories about how some of the most well-known jingles have been sort of turned around in 10 minutes because there was an idea in the studio and then some that had been uh, like shopped around from agency to brand to agency and uh, have finally sort of come to fruition. But we'll be looking at what can we learn from those most famous and familiar uh, jingles that, that are out there. Well, Ramesh and Ralph, thank you both very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Tim. Welcome, Tim. And that's it for the week. But before we go, if you're interested in hearing more from Ralph, you should check out Mumbrella's Audioland virtual event on October 13. As 2020 can attest, the audio medium is invaluable in connecting people in times of crisis. From radio's vital updates during Australia's bushfires to podcasts keeping us entertained during COVID-19 lockdowns, it's the industry that has the power to engage and deliver like never before. Alongside Ralph, you'll hear from a range of experts, including Podian's Travis Johnson, BBC's Alistair McEwen, and Veritonic's Scott Simonelli, plus many more. Tickets start from just $55. Head to mumbrella.com.au slash audioland to find out more. That's it for this week, though. Thank you for joining me, Brittany. Thanks, Hannah.